Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. It is great to be here on Triple R today. We have a very special guest on the line, which we're going to speak to in just a moment. But we uh, we have uh, Dr. Ewan in the studio. Good morning, sir. How are you going? Hang on, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Try good? again. I'm yeah, good. Yeah. All good. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the environment later with you, and uh, which will be cool. And uh, we've got a couple of great guests coming into the studio. We're going to be talking about art and science in a little bit. Which it's a cracking is always, show. I'm looking forward to it. Always good. We're only a couple of weeks away from the Radiothon, so we'll be you know calling on people to support the station. It's all happening. Soon. But we've got some good content for you coming up, folks. Uh, first of all, though, I'd like to introduce Professor Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer of Victoria. Brett, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you on the line. I think uh, most people know who you are, but give us a bit of a rundown. What's the role of the, the CHO, the Chief Health Officer, and how does it differentiate from the Chief Medical Officer role? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the the, the general impression, I guess, would be that the Chief Health Officer carries statutory powers under the Public Health and, and Wellbeing Act and can implement them in, in routine times as well as in um, uh, under a pandemic declaration. That's certainly been the front and centre elements of my role in the last two and a half years. Um, but in normal times, whatever that means, mm. um, it's really more uh, expert advice on public health um, to government, as well as being a spokesperson on, on public health matters, especially for uh, incidents um, and, uh, and emergencies. So, you know, from a, a measles outbreak or a foodborne outbreak or um, a Legionnaire's uh, disease outbreak linked to cooling towers, um, you know, I've either... Uh, stood up occasionally as as deputy chief health officer previously, or as chief health officer on those issues. But I wasn't in the role uh, very long when the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic came along. So it's been the statutory powers that have been um, the mm. real feature. But um, it, it is a broader role. Uh, it deals with all food food safety, environmental health, communicable disease, uh, as well as some other miscellaneous issues. Um, and there's a there's a parliamentary requirement for a biennial report on the on the state of health in Victoria as well, mm. um, which I hope people can uh, dig into and see that um, there really is a lot of work uh, in the population health space that the department does, and which I try and highlight as well. Yeah, interesting. I think uh, one of the things that's fair to say is we we haven't really seen a lot of that other work that you do up until this point because the focus, whenever we see you in the media, is is always seemingly on COVID. So I, I'm I'm not sure as is the other work as high profile? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most of the time that's sort of happening in the background. Yeah, look, it's, it's certainly happening in the background, but the, the pace and volume of that work um, has gone on unabated. I guess it's been constrained by the um, flex that we've all had to do to focus on COVID. Um, but there's still a lot of policymaking work, a lot of guidance, a lot of analysis um, that goes into the policy development that's um, happening all of the time. Um, but I didn't have a I didn't have a significant profile, so I might have been on radio once a month or yeah. uh, TV every now and again. Um, but I didn't have you know 170,000 people who might have um, 
uh, been able to reflect on my thoughts on Twitter previously. So, you know, some of that's um, some of that's an opportunity now, and I do hope to highlight, you know, broader public health issues um, going forward. Yeah. Now, let's go back a little bit. Uh, you're 12 years old. You're dreaming of being the CHO. Is that how it worked? What was it? What was yeah. it like when you were growing up? Did you always want to become the chief health officer, or was this something that sort of, uh, you know, popped up a little bit later? Oh, I definitely came uh, late in in my life or in my career. I um, I graduated from high school thinking I'd want to become a vet, but but really switched um, very late in the piece uh, to medicine. Mm. Um, but didn't didn't have super strong feelings about it at that time. But it really um, grew on me over time, and it was a combination of doing medicine um, and travelling internationally uh, that really took my focus from individual clinical care um, to public health. And I did have 10 years, 10 fantastic years in emergency medicine, uh, including in Northwest Tasmania and and Victoria, as well as in the UK. Uh, And then some humanitarian work in Afghanistan and um, Horn of Africa. But it was, it was more um, population health focused work in East Timor and and, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia that um, made me think about the power of population health. And so I, um, I did put my hand up for a job in the um, health department on my return to Australia from East Timor um, in 2010. Mm. And, and yeah, it, it dawned on me slowly that um, this role of Chief Health Officer was a really critical one um, in supporting population health and, you know, had some, had some great role models from uh, John Carney and Rosemary Lester um, and, and many others. So um, a, long, a long tradition of people who are really focused on um, maximising the health and wellbeing of, of Victorians and, and in global work as well. Do you, do you find, Brett, that there are times where there's a bit of a, a balance you have to strike between the population level stuff and what feels like the more individual stuff? Yeah, certainly the, the crisis management stuff always um, has urgency to it and, and takes centre stage. Um, so you have to make sure that you're appropriately invested in that other really important work, you yeah. know, that affects people every day, but a- across a population of millions and millions. And so, um, you know, whether it's a, a slow burning crisis like antimicrobial resistance or, or, an, or one with an even longer latent period like um, climate change and its uh, multitudinous effects on health and wellbeing, um, but also, you know, overweight and obesity sedentary behaviour, um, smoking, gambling, excessive alcohol intake, all of those things are, are deep up mental concerns. I don't always intersect with them fully um, as Chief Health Officer because there are other um, divisions in the department that, that manage that, but um, they're all something that, uh, you know, we need to focus and the work on um, because they, they certainly play out in our health and wellbeing across across the country yeah now we've had the idea i suppose that clean water is almost do we call the human right i'm trying to think of exactly how we we sort of address that worldwide but um i know the the idea of everyone having access to clean water is a pretty fundamental idea that we have across the world now um you would have experienced a lot of that with your travels i mean this is something that we we think of you know as as a core element of our health yeah Absolutely. And, and I remember um, a statement by my Afghan translator um, back in 1997, and he said to me, you know, you do realise that um, if you have a pet at home, it will drink cleaner water than our president drinks. Mm. And, and it really struck me, you know, at yeah. a population level, 
um, there's still much of the world that struggles uh, to access what we regard as a very fundamental uh, entitlement and, and one that is invisible to us because we can always access it and it, and it very, very rarely um, isn't available to us, um, you know, with free access and, and at a very uh, reasonable price. Mm. So fast forward there, you know, those conversations you've had now are in a situation where we're starting to talk about clean air as, you know, something that we should all have access to. Where do you think we're at with that? And let's just talk pre-COVID, you know, where we're looking at in the home, in the office, on public transport, you know, the various settings that we find ourselves in. How are we going with regards to clean air standards before, um, before we actually, you know, hit the pandemic? There was clearly a focus on it and it was clearly understood to be important. Having gone through um, the Industrial Revolution, uh, mm. you know, we, we saw how it played out um, in Europe in particular uh, when there were huge um, issues of particulate matter and, and the great London smog um, that killed thousands and thousands of people. And so there, were, there was a focus on outdoor ambient um, air quality and that's been an ongoing focus and there are national standards and Victorian efforts um, in that regard that relate to emissions um, as well as uh, various um, pollutants in, in the air that affect our health and wellbeing. Um, indoor air, uh, with respect to infectious diseases, less so. It was certainly, um, it started to be incorporated in building standards and it was definitely um, highlighted through an era when tuberculosis was um, a huge burden. Yep. Um, but I guess it had been forgotten a little bit and, and we didn't realise um, the, the necessity and the power of it with a very infectious disease really until COVID. I mean, we know uh, it makes a difference um, with other infectious diseases, but how central it was and how important it is for kind of sustained well-being um i think we're only just coming to realize uh, in recent in recent months and years yeah with with covid do you have a feel at this point for you know how much of the transmission is occurring due to you know the aerosol nature of the virus versus contact because you know if we go back a couple of years you know we had a very strong focus on on cleaning surfaces on on you know all the hand hygiene all of those things do we have a feel for how, how much you know transmission there is via that more traditional route compared to the aerosol nature of the virus we sort of accept now well, I hope we're coming around to it. I, you know, I think it's it's taken a while. Um, it's not easy to to get studies on this and to make um, appropriate comparisons. But you know, the CDC, for example, really nailed it when um, fomite or surface transmission was regarded as a one in ten thousand per exposure risk. Um, mm. And so, it's really uh, not nearly as great as we might have imagined previously. Of course, hand hygiene's been a central pillar. Of public health for a long, long time, but more with bacteria, more in an era of poor um, sanitation. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it's been it's been said in my team, and, and uh, Dr. Sermon, who was on just before, mm. uh, said it. In fact, he said ventilation should be our hand washing uh, in 2022. Right. Uh, um, that you know that hand washing was in 2020. We really need to see that as our hygiene measure par excellence, because I think that's going to be more impactful um, by orders of magnitude compared to, to surface contacts. Yeah, it's interesting, Brett. We had, um, we had uh, Robin Schofield on a couple of weeks back, who I know you're, you're familiar with, um, and one of the first things she did was pop a CO2 monitoring device in the studio when she came in, and, and you know, we, we were not overly surprised, but 
you know, of course, concerned to see the just the CO2 levels more than doubling during the course of um, a one-hour show in a relatively small room. And I thought, you know, here at Triple R, we open up the the doors. We have HEPA filters, which you know, it's not a not a way to remove co2 in case anyone's wondering if that's the way to solve climate change um but it does strip out you know the virus and we're pretty careful to make sure that that airflow is is monitored and, and taken care of but even so um those levels were, were drifting up i mean there's there must be circumstances where there's much worse though where we have large numbers of people and we're not currently dealing with ventilation in the way that's you know effective yeah it's true um and we're learning more all of the time, but those those key factors, the size of the room, the number of people inside, the activity they're undertaking, and obviously mm. uh, talking increases um, uh, viral particle emissions if, if you know there's someone um, infected unknowingly, um, but also exertion. And um, you know I, I think we're increasingly understanding that it, it doesn't take too much, but it does need to be cross room flow. Yep. And so, um, opening a door, even for a relatively short period of time, it might be 10 minutes in an hour, but if you can get that through room flow uh, happening from door to window, window to window, it can make a huge difference. But, yes, it doesn't take long to build up, mm. um, but it also can be addressed pretty quickly uh, with some additional simple measures, either that natural ventilation or um, a ceiling fan or a pedestal fan to help um, uh, accelerate that natural ventilation. And obviously, HEPA filters where you can't get sufficient natural ventilation, they won't change those CO2 levels, as you say, Mm. uh, but they'll absolutely mop up um, viral particles. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, One of the things, of of course, that's still out there en masse, it would seem, is this 1.5 metre kind of myth that uh, I realise, you know, it was interesting at the start of the pandemic um, when, you know, people are sort of coughing and sneezing and that idea of very large particles um, coming out of our bodies and hitting the ground within a metre or so. It seemed like a pretty good idea to send this this piece of communication out that 1.5 metres would give you a degree of safety or at least reduce your risk. that still seems to be everywhere. I mean, how do you see that given we really need people to be thinking very differently now? I mean, one of the things I I will tell people about the Triple R Studios is that we don't, like when I do my show, no one was in this studio for the hour beforehand because even when there's no one in the room with a properly aerosol-type virus, you know, that can be hanging around in the air well past the point when they left. So is this 1.5-metre stuff now becoming problematic? Look, I, I think um, it, it's clearly been of some benefit over a long period of time um, because uh, 1.5 metres is better than 0.5 metres. There's no yeah. question. But um, it, it has obscured the fact um, that it's a gradient and not some kind of magical uh, wall where mm. the virus um, doesn't go any further. And I think the, the droplet dogma uh, held us back in that regard. Um, but, you know, the studies that show that people have been infected over 8, 10, 15 metres within an enclosed space, again, depending on activity and uh, and natural ventilation, um, ha- has made us realise that uh, 1.5 metres isn't some magical barrier. So, yes, still useful to um, create that distance if you can, but you shouldn't think, oh, you know, I'm at two metres, hmm. I don't need to wear a mask, I don't need to think about ventilation. Um, because you do, and um, uh, even though you can diminish that risk, uh, there are more things that we can and should do because transmission certainly occurs over that uh, longer distance. And as you say, um, aerosolised particles stay suspended in the air for a significant amount of time, and so 
having ventilation all of the time uh, helps to manage you know that next person who comes in the room uh, which which is just as important. Yeah, I think um, we often forget just how far some of this stuff travels. Even even outdoors, I think where we obviously are at much lower risk, there's still the potential for aerosol particles to to travel substantial distances. I remember recently just walking down the street with my wife, and there was a, a couple of gentlemen on the other side of the street walking, you know, in the opposite direction. They were smoking. And it wasn't long before we smelt the smoke on the other side of the road. And I thought, we're outside. There wasn't a lot of wind, you know, but things disperse fairly quickly. And we forget just how much that can occur. And the virus happens to, you know, disperse just as quickly as, as many other things like smoke and so forth. And we don't think about that. Um, in, in terms of, you know, what's being put in place bred around the state i mean is there a a strong push coming from from you and the department to really up the ante with regards to ventilation i mean we have pretty extremes in weather here in melbourne like most cities do where you know if it's i suppose autumn or spring it's kind of nice to open all the windows but you know in the middle of summer and middle of winter it's far more challenging it's not an easy task um but uh there will be little things that we can do. And, again, it, it won't be having uh, doors wide open uh, on a freezing cold day uh, as your only means of ventilation. But um, if we can all think about uh, the opportunity to get some ventilation in at intervals, um, even in cold weather, that's going to make a difference. But then to think about, and, and we've got those self-assessment tools um, available through the department's website, mm-hmm. um, to see what other things that you might be able to do, including... Um, those ceiling and pedestal fans or the HEPA filters um, if you've really got no other option, Uh, but also to, um, you know, recognise that we're we're playing the long game here. There'll be some structural planning uh, and policy issues to play out over years to come for COVID, but also for any other uh, infectious disease, um, uh, especially respiratory viruses that'll play out um, over winters especially and and flu's a case in point. Um, That's why I think... We need to keep at it. We've got a ventilation technical advisory panel. Um, it's working across departments. So there's a there's been a great deal of expertise inputted into that, um, and it's absolutely informing both policy as well as um, government rebates and uh, government grants for small and medium sized businesses to make those modifications or to get those assessments. Um, and so I, I really hope that it scales up over time and that the awareness is uh, enough that people make. Um, those small changes across mm. all of these indoor settings that we're in all of the time because, you know, it's not just about today's numbers or to, or the hospitalisation today. It'll be what's the frequency with which we get COVID over the next two, three, four years and um, ventilation will play its role there. So it'll be a downward pressure on long COVID. It'll be a downward pressure on those uh, post-COVID illnesses that are that, um, increase in frequency because you've had COVID including um, clots, uh, including heart attack, including um, uh, respiratory illness. So, mm. you know, really important uh, in the long game that we uh, have a focus on on ventilation. Absolutely, we're providing that advice to government. Yeah. And, Brett, the, the big one at the moment, of course, is the mask wearing. I mean, everyone seems to be talking about this, and I know there's some pushback from certain individuals on, on mandates, and I realise mandates can be challenging. What's your sort of view on this? I mean, I think, you know, via your you know quite um, prolific Twitter feed, I've, I've noticed you've been pretty consistent with regards to this. It seems to me this is just another tool that we should be using as much as possible, and especially where 
there are vulnerable people in in play that uh, we want you know we all need to protect what are your thoughts yeah i think that's true i think we just need to continue that message um of course it's it's got a lot of heat in it from time to time and um you know it's been polarizing uh in in ways that it shouldn't have been we should have all been able to mm. sit back yes we could have argued the points about exactly how effective the mandate might be or, or exactly the magnitude of the impact of um wearing masks at a population level but none of us should have been fighting the fight over where, whether it makes a difference uh, in terms of downward pressure on transmission because it just does yep. um, and so that should be the starting point and, and we should all reflect on the fact that even with low numbers and you know we've got today's numbers lowest for the whole of this year i think um we should still remember that uh nobody wants 20 deaths per day and that um, downward pressure on transmission makes a difference in that regard. And so I, I really do hope it, we acculturate a bit more to saying it's just a mask. Um, it's not mm. going to do me harm. It can only do myself and others good. Um, so I'll do it um, as often as I can, you know, and, and recognising that um, it's not for everyone at, in every moment in time, uh, but there are um, particular settings, again, with poorer ventilation, crowded spaces uh, indoors where... Um, it should really be something that we go to by default. Yeah. Do, do we need to do a lot more at the moment in the communication space? Because I think one of the things that I've noticed is there still tends to be a tremendous amount of what we would probably call mask theatre going on. Um, we know that, you know, the, the blue surgical masks are not really, you know, where we want to be in terms of protection. And yet we still see those. We see those with clinicians. We see those with politicians. We see those with all sorts of people. Um, there's still a lot of masks around chins. There's masks being carried. Is there a big communication piece that needs to be done here to, to sort of offset that negativity that's that's happening at the moment? Yeah, I certainly think, again, it's a, it's a long game here. I certainly think we need to be able to sustain behaviours that are um, that are useful in the long term, um, but also not, not wear people down. Um, you know, you're right that uh, we all become models uh, in, in terms of how we wear it and we create the social norms by what we do individually and collectively. Um, but, you know, the, the N95, um, KN95 announcement from the Victorian government was um, very much part of that communication campaign. So it's not just about making those masks available, but it's been really clear that we understand that um, we're dealing with a very transmissible virus uh, and that a, um, a well-fitting mask, a higher-grade mask, um, is even better protection uh, and that we regard it as a really central pillar of um, control and protection. So, um, you know... That kind of communication, yes, we'll need to sustain that uh, into the long term for sure. Mm. Brett, before we let you go, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the health system and how it's faring at the moment. We hear a lot of stories, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the news. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of it's at the extreme end, but some of it may actually be right in the middle. How, how are we faring? I mean, you mentioned the hospital numbers are coming down with regards to COVID, but it seems as though there's an incredible degree of strain um, in, the, in the healthcare system at the moment. Yeah, look, I think there is. Clearly, um, hospitalisations have come down by about a third and the, and the same for ICU um, in recent weeks. But I don't want to speak on behalf of clinicians. I haven't been um, in ED for, for some years now mm. and it was it was a tough enough gig um, on a normal day. I, I hate to think how um, uh, wards and outpatients and, and ED are faring. Um, you know, I, I do think 
it's useful for everyone in the community to try and see it through healthcare workers' eyes because um, it, it's not just about them facing uh, today. It's the fact that it's two and a half years in. Um, we've had deferred care as well and we've got people struggling for a whole bunch of reasons um, because of what we've been through. Uh, and, there's, and there's no, you know... Um, pot of gold uh, at the at the end of the line. We just need to do the hard yakka to be able to uh, make it easier for them. I um, I came back from the UK uh, recently, and I have to say, like they, COVID looks forgotten to me, um, and, and it's almost true for everyone except for those in the NHS who mm. regard it as an absolute disaster. And so, you know, I, I am grateful for the fact that we retain a focus on COVID, um, even if people are tiring of it. Um, because it, it, it's absolutely a threat to our health system and how we can all access it. Yeah. And, Brett, in terms of the, the, the coming sort of year, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we will expect there'll be further waves. There's no reason to expect they'll be easier or better. You know, that often is thrown around, and I don't think that expectation is sound, and certainly based on our experience over the last two years hasn't panned out. Are you, are you hopeful and what, what do you think that we need to sort of be doing over the next six months, given that we're not out of this and we won't be out of this for a while? No, I think we have to prepare um, for uh, wave after wave, unfortunately. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable reality, but it's absolutely how it's going to be. Um, I, I hope that there's a game-changing vaccine, intranasal vaccine, pan-coronavirus vaccine that, that's properly... Uh, able to block transmission altogether and works across all variants, but that is not uh, just around the corner. It might be two, three years away. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a continued um, bumpy ride, but it's a case of, you know, shoulder uh, to the ground to be able to um, continue to manage it. The severity of particular variants of concern, yeah, we shouldn't make the call that um, there's something intrinsic about the virus that it just gets less severe over time. We've seen it go up and down and up and down, and, and that um, can absolutely be how it proceeds from now on. We can certainly make it better uh, by having higher third and fourth dose vax coverage. Um, third dose is, is good, not, not brilliant. Uh, fourth dose, we're at about 62% for those 65 and above. So we can do better there. That, that's an extra uh, wall of immunity um, that we need. Um, and, of course, a lot of us have been infected. That does provide um, some additional uh, immunity. We don't want it as our strategy, and we certainly don't want to say get infected to avoid infection, but we can recognise that um, it, it will provide um, some shorter-term downward pressure. That's why we're on the downslope now uh, in part. So, um, you know, we're going to have these rides um, because of that combination of things, but there are still uh, plenty of things we can do to um, to help ourselves and those around us. Yeah. Brett, in, in all your years doing this sort of work, have you ever seen a virus that seems to be so different for different people before? Um, oh, look, I, I, I guess there are a number that we don't, necessarily focus on that you know there are some that are devastating for uh, young children and asymptomatic for um, the great majority of the population and vice versa so um, I wouldn't say it's the strangest in that regard but it's um, you know as a pandemic uh, it's very different from an influenza virus isn't it um, mm. it may be that the um, so-called pandemic of um, the late 1800s 1880s or 90s um, was a coronavirus pandemic we, we never knew it but um, that that was um, uh, that was one that lasted 
three to five years in terms of its disruptions. Uh, so, you know, there might be history there, but mm. uh, we we certainly have short uh, memories sometimes when it comes to pandemic uh, responses. Yeah. Well, Professor Brett Sutton, thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and GoGo. It's great chatting to you. Hopefully we'll get to do it again at some stage when, I don't know, maybe after the next wave or when the next wave is not happening or whatever else the future brings. But uh, thanks for all the work that you do. We do appreciate it. We know it's a, a tough gig and you probably cop a lot more flack than you should, but um, it is appreciated that uh, you put in the hard yards and communicate in a way that I think we can all appreciate. So thanks very much for being a guest today. Thanks, Shane. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now, and I mean in the studio, which is always fun, is Emmy Orbach and Noah Spivak, their artists. Welcome, both of you. Great to have you here. Thanks, Dr. Thank Shane. Thank you for having us. Now, um, I... I suppose it's Science Week coming up, so yeah, one's very, very exciting. Um, what, what do you guys normally do in Science Week? You, you're artists. Yeah, visual artists. Um, this is actually both of our first time partaking in the festival. Right. Or in the, yeah, in the program. So yeah. very exciting for us. Yep. Yeah. And you're normally based here in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah. we're based in Melbourne. Uh, for the last year, we've been collaborating on an exhibition that's happening at the Coonahan Gallery yep. in Brunswick. Um, and basically, throughout this process, we're asking one central question, and that's really what happens when you allow a chemical to dictate the outcome of an artwork? Right. Um, so, yeah, just letting chemicals and chemistry take over now, um, the there's, process. Now, there's probably a whole other chemists out there who think they can control it all, right? <laughs> I mean, there's this, you know, Ewan's a animal guy, so, you know, chemicals <laughs> not so much, but, you know, I'm a physics guy, so I'm like, keep away Everything from Everything is chemicals, yep. right? Yep. But... Um, <laughs> I have to say, you know, looking at some of your work, because I've got a big uh, geology collection at home, yep. and crystals, and I, when I see crystals, I get excited. Yeah. So you're, you're using, like, there's, there's a, obviously a base to the artwork, but you're then incorporating some of the beautiful elements of chemistry into that. Tell us how that works. Yeah. Yeah, so both of our practices separately outside of this collaboration kind of focused or revolved around uh, specific chemistry each. Yep. And through speaking to each other, we realized that they actually are quite, quite reactive together. So that was kind of the basis of this project, kinding of to see how, how these chemicals can react with one another. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I mainly practice with monoammonium phosphate, right. which is commonly a, a fertilizer. It's um, yeah, rich in phosphorus and uh, nitrogen. So, uh, and it, Commonly used as science kits for kids. If right. you ever had those crystal magic yeah, yeah, garden yeah. kits, I just found that so stunning and ended up um, yeah purchasing it in bulk and making large-scale sculptures out of it. Uh, so, yeah, I literally create a solution, a chemical bath. I design um, a sculptural substrate, yep. submerge it in there, and over 24, 48 hours or over a week, I build up these beautiful geometric clusters of crystals that take over the form so i have this image of you the all this ammonium nitrate in the back of your car so. <laughs> that's <laughs> correct how's that yeah. go down yeah. not being pulled but, over by the police right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get lots of breaking bad jokes uh, <laughs> um but yeah we're both just 
artists and we're sort of, yeah, making art and sort of discovering how these chemistries evolve. So yeah. we don't have science backgrounds. We're just, yeah, two ah. artists trying not to blow mm. our heads off <laughs> in <Yeah>. the studio. <laughs> and, and how much – so so when you when you talk about, you know, submerging um, something you've sculptured in there, I mean, how much control do you have at that point over the end product? I mean, do you have a vision of what that will be or is it sort of like just a choose-your-own-adventure game and hope for the best? Sure. Um, I guess – I'm familiar with the geometry. It creates these tetragonal prisms. Yep, yep. So I'm aware of that. I'm also aware of the fact that temperature, humidity all play a part in how these crystals grow. And there's mm. about several different kind of formations that these crystals can take, ranging from uh, robust kind of forms to very de- delicate um, kind of floral and mm. pine needle <laughs> kind of structures. So, yeah, being aware of that, uh, I try to take as much control as I can. But at the end of the day... Uh, yeah, the artwork and the chemical will just do what it does naturally. So, so you so may not be a scientist. Let go. You may not be a scientist, but you know more about this than you and I do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and do, you, do you colour the crystals and so forth as well, or do you just go with the natural? So they, are um, they clear? Yeah, no? I work with just clear crystals. Clear crystals. Yeah, yeah. I don't um, aesthetically treat them too much, and just sort of yeah, let let them take centre stage. Yeah. But yeah, Noah's working with um, very different chemicals and kind of structures as well. Yeah, I, I saw so, one of your. Um, one of your pieces, Noah, and it, and it kind of it, it almost looked like I was looking at some kind of relief map of Mars or something. Yeah. It was just wild. So mine is, whereas Emmy's probably is more additive or um, yeah, adds physical mass. Yep. The chemical I work with, which is sodium hydroxide, is more of a corrosive chemical. Right. So it, I work on, or I like watching how my chemistry can eat away at other surfaces and substances so i like to reveal what's kind of underneath right through a bit more of a like a time-based uh process yeah and again and do you set that up like i can imagine you could actually score materials or or change them so that they have structural flaws that those chemicals eat into and you have control over that yeah or finding probably more porous materials or um materials that the the chemical can get kind of deeper within whether it's through uh like a physical abrasion or just being more porous yeah Amazing stuff. Now, in terms of um, this current exhibition you have coming up, which um, I understand is called Leftovers of a Ghost. First of all, where does that name come from? It sounds, it sounds cool. I came up with a title. Um, I love titling my works quite in kind of a poetic manner. But when, when we started this project and started about uh, talking how we wanted to collaborate and what we wanted to achieve with this project and kind of going back to that one central question of what happens when you allow this chemical reaction to dictate the outcome of an artwork. Mm. It was kind of like a, just a light bulb in my brain saying, okay, well, it's like we're collaborating with this other third entity, whether it's a ghost or whatever you want to classify it as. So right. it's kind of that implying that there's like something it. left by someone else. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And so uh, w- where is the exhibit going to be over the next week? When do people get to see it? What will they see? Yeah, so it's happening at Coonahan Gallery, which is just uh, down at Sydney Road, Brunswick. Uh, it's running till the 11th of September, so plenty of time to check it out. Uh, we're actually doing an artist talk next Saturday on the 20th of August at 2pm. Um, if you wanted to know more about the artworks, we'll be walking people through the entire exhibition oh, cool. yeah. um, and detailing each piece. Um, But, yeah, just a bit of an overview of the show. We've ambitiously made over 60 artworks. Wow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And that varies from uh, the very beginning of the show, which is our inspiration and found objects. It's kind of like a Wunderkammer owed to the Museum of Natural kind of curiosities and mm-hmm. objects that have inspired us. Um, through to some of our photographic series, which you might want to speak uh, about. Yeah, we kind of uh, allow f- uh, chemical solutions to react with photographic paper. I have a mm. background in photography, um, which we kind of just use as a controlled surface to kind of uh, see all the variables that we can achieve with these mm. chemical solutions. Yeah, and then we have a series on the back wall where we've applied uh, the chemistries on different substrates, so experimenting how they react on wood to polystyrene or um, foam, for instance. Uh, And then we have three large central installations as well um, with larger-than-life Petri dishes uh, that, yeah, collect this residue and have been evolving in the space. So you can actually come back and visit uh, the show. It's a durational show. You can see things, how Mm. colours have changed um, and these chemistries have evolved. That's That's what I was going to ask. Like, like, uh, how long can you let these things go for, right? Because you'd have these changes, I I imagine, are quite short-term, but then if you can let things go for even longer, I presume other changes might start occurring, right? So, like, what happens at the end of this exhibition? Like, does it you have to pack it all down or can you move things in other places? Like... Can you let things go even longer? It's actually... I've, I've found it astonishing because it still surprises me uh, to this day. You know, I might take an artwork, uh, show it in a different setting that actually has a bit more humidity, for yeah. instance, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of a sudden these crystals just start growing all over again. again. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so they are very much living, yeah, organisms and yeah, breeding wow. grounds. Um, yeah, it's... And even we went in... We went into the gallery yesterday and we noticed um, in these photographic works they're cast in resin and within some of them uh, the chemical reactions are still happening after several weeks. Very cool. Yes, keeping us engaged. It's wild <laughs> stuff. I tell you, we've had some artists in here over the years but I've never had two people who are so like understanding of the chemical processes involved of what's going on. It's wild. Um, you. you know, I'm sure there's a university just throw you an honorary degree at some stage. <laughs> not that you need it. Um, but, it, but it's great. Yeah, you know, any university watching right now? You know. Actually, that's a good point because we definitely want to foster a community of artists that are working with science or yep. nature. Uh, so if there's anyone out there listening that's thinking, oh, this is something that I'm actually working with or something I'm really interested in, uh, please, yeah, chuck us a follow on Instagram or um, shoot us an email via our website because, yeah, we're keen to foster a community of people that love science Fan- and art. Fantastic. Terrific. Years ago when I was just a humble little physicist, I used to, you know, never really had much to do with the arts. Uh, but now I tell all scientists I know, get some friends in the arts because for <laughs> crying out loud, they're good at communicating to the public some well, of the things that we want to communicate. And they're both incredibly creative pursuits. Yeah, That's what I love yeah. about both of them. They're about creating new things, whether it's new knowledge or new Absolutely. new structures, whatever it might be, right? Yeah, so, sure. yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Well, M. Noah, thanks so much for coming in today. Good luck with the exhibition. It sounds great. There's a lot of pieces. Did you just say 60? Yeah. 60 oh, yeah. pieces. That's, that's a lot. I, well, I went to an exhibition recently in a different location, and I didn't think there was 60. Um, so <laughs> I'm feeling a little ripped off now. No, it was good, but uh, that, that sounds great. So hopefully people Thanks. can get along and it's very yeah. successful. Have a great science week. Yeah, have And um, hopefully this will lead to bigger and better things as you go. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank Shane. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and then when we come back, uh, Ewan's going to talk about some environmental stuff. Triple R. We've had a big show so far, Dr Ewan. Exciting stuff. It has been a great show. Yeah. Bring us home. 
Yep. Well, I, <laughs> as, no as many listeners know, I often talk about sort of, I guess, the perilous state that, you know, our animals and our ecosystems and so forth are in. But what I wanted to talk to you about today was really sort of um, lateral thinking, left field thinking in conservation mm-hmm. and how that's actually allowed us to have some big wins and success stories because, you know, I think we need success stories. So I'm sort of just going to, I guess, talk the listeners through some really, I think, really wonderful ingenious things that scientists have done that have actually made a big difference for some of our endangered species. So the first one I want to talk about, which is by um, Dr. Fernanda Alves and colleagues down um, in Tasmania, is a little bird called the 40-spotted pardalote. Um, some people in Melbourne would be familiar with pardalotes as well, not the 40-spotted, but the spotted. The 40-spotted's got little rows of spots along them, but it's only about the size of a ping-pong ball. Beautiful, right. tiny little bird that flits along um, up in the tops of gum trees. And it feeds on what's called manna. So people will probably know the phrase, you know, manna from heaven. It actually pecks holes in the leaves and sap comes out and it feeds on wonderful little birds. But they're endangered like so many of our yep. so many of our species, unfortunately. And they're now largely restricted to two islands, Mariah and Bruni Island, um, because most of their habitat's been cut down, unfortunately, like a lot of species. But mm. they face this other problem, um, which is a bit more gruesome, and that is that their young um, are parasitised by flies. So when they're nesting, these flies come along and they basically burrow into the, um, the skin of the featherless birds and they feed on their blood. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty gruesome stuff. <laughs> And they are, are flies normally blood feeders. I wasn't uh, aware of that. Some 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 flies are parasitic. So yeah. you know, in, in the, I guess the animal world, we have you sort of you know what you might think of carnivores, like probably many people think of standard predators, things that you know eat flesh and chase yeah. animals around, like a lion. Herbivores, of course, which tend to eat plants, um, and we have parasites and we have parasitoids, which are things that actually inf- put their young on top of or inside another organism. So you've probably seen the movie Alien, I'm guessing. Yeah, I was just thinking that about that classic <laughs> scene. That is a parasitoid. Great, great. Thanks, John Hurt. Yeah. Uh, appreciate your work. But yeah, so these 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 are uh, young flies are feeding on these um, poor chicks, and because they're already endangered, they need all the help they can get, and these wonderful scientists came up with this idea. They they use feathers to make their nest. So they'll fly around in the environment collecting feathers. And they thought, well, what if we could get feathers and douse them with a safe insecticide so that's used in commercial um, setups so for things like chickens and aviaries and so forth, mm-hmm. put them out in the environment, and then if the pardalotes take those feathers and then make that with their nests would that actually lead to greater success of their nests? Right. And sure enough, they experimentally did this. So they put out these... Um, I, I love this too because it's really basic um, hardware. So imagine like a sort of a canister with a whole bunch of chicken feathers that have been doused in this insecticide, basically stuck on with things like gaffer tape, so really right. basic. Yep. Put that near the nests of these pardalotes. They then take these feathers, make their nests... And they measured the nest success of those without this insecticide and those with. And the ones that didn't have the insecticide in their nest, so just a normal nest, um, they only had about 8% uh, nest success. The ones with, 95% of the chicks made wow. it. So that's more than tenfold yeah, yeah, yeah. increase in nest. That's massive, right? So are we do 
doing massive airdrops now of these feathers. Like <laughs> That's I can imagine, the tricky you know, part, of course. Is, yeah. How, know, do you get how, out there? how do you scale that up, right? Yeah. Like how do you scale that up? But I just think that's a wonderful example, you know, of how we can help this this wonderful little bird. And the second example I'm going to uh, talk about is also a bird. So we've talked about this Tasmanian bird. Now I'm going to take you up into uh, northern Australia, up into Cape York, and there's this wonderful species of parrot called the golden-shouldered parrot. And there's three species of parrot in Australia. Unfortunately, one of them we think is extinct, the princess parrot. Um, there's also the hooded parrot. But the golden-shouldered parrot, they, they dig and they make these nests in termite mounds. So they actually find a termite mound. In the case of the golden-shouldered parrot, they like conical termite mounds. There's three types up there. There's magnetic termite mounds. I don't know if you've seen magnetic termite mounds, but if you go up to you know, particularly places like Litchfield National Park and Kakadu, they're amazing. They they align north-south. I assume for the thermal properties, that's what right. is assumed, that the termites can basically use that to get the thermal mass. One side's warm, one side's cool, and so yeah. forth. But they use the conical ones which they build their nests in. But unfortunately, the golden-shouldered parrot is also in trouble um, and it's declined significantly since European colonisation. And the main reasons for that is overgrazing by cattle, but also the fire regime has changed quite considerably as well. Now, often in northern Australia, we're trying to actually reduce the amount of fire in some cases and have smaller, less frequent fires and potentially um, less intense. But in the case of these parrots, what they actually need is a more open habitat. And the way that you get that is by having big hot fires just before the wet season starts. And that hasn't happened as much in many areas. And what that's led to is encroachment of their habitat. So rather than imagining if you've got, you know, big gum trees and then quite an open understory with lots of grass, which is what this parrot loves, you've got a lot of melaleuca and other things invading that grass and it's, it's closer together. And you might think, well, what does that actually matter for a parrot? And the reason it matters is they've got a predator, particularly butcher birds. Okay. And it, but the story gets even more interesting from there is that when these habitats used to be more open, wood swallows, which would fly in the sky, they would actually detect these butcher birds and sound an alarm, which allows the parrots to then go back to their nest and make sure everything's okay. Okay. When things are really <clears throat> crowded in with the habitat, those wood swallows have just disappeared. It's not suitable for them, so they're out of there. Um, and it means that the, basically these, uh, you know, these butcher birds can get closer mm. and actually uh, predate these nests more easily than they otherwise would in the past. So, again, really problematic. When you're already an endangered species, you've got this change of habitat. But, again, through, I think, a lot of really sort of, um, I guess, different thinking and, and work by a range of people. And what's really lovely about this work too is it involves uh, Indigenous people uh, in, the, in the region, of course, so the Taipan and Okala people of Cape York, um, Dr Steve Murphy, Dr Professor Stephen Garnett, but also um, this cattle station, which I've actually personally worked on during my PhD days many years ago on a different species, the Antilopine wallaroo. Sue and Tom Shepard have been working with this species for many, many years. And what they're doing is actually <laughs> destroying native vegetation. Now, <laughs> conservation is probably going, what? They're destroying yep, native vegetation? Yeah. What? Yeah. We're supposed to be arguing against that, aren't we? But in this case, it's for a good reason. So we yep. know that it's become too, too, too crowded, and that this causes problems for these parrots. So with permission, which they had to get from yep. government, because you can imagine if a conservation group says, <laughs> actually, we want to clear some native vegetation, and they're like, uh, why would you be doing that <laughs> to help this parrot? 
And so they're clearing this vegetation away, which again is basically restoring it back to the way it was. And also they're, they're reinstating what you might consider a more traditional fire regime, which is right. having these, these, these fires that open the habitat up. So another, another great yeah. example of sort of out-of-the-box thinking about doing things really, really different than how you might normally sort of proceed. And with these three different species in play here, I mean, this is the part that I find really fascinating. Yep. So you've got the, the parrots on the ground and, and the ones... The wood swallows. The wood swallows sending the signals. They're yep. the ones sending out the alarm. So I always ask the question, what's in it for them? Like, why are they doing I don't think that? it's... I mean, they're not really... They're not doing it for the parrots. I think it's just, I guess, that often when you've got birds, particularly in groups, it's, you know, you're letting your your um, your um the members of your group know, right. oh, there's a predator in the area. Because a butcher bird could, could kill a wood swallow as well. Right. And so I guess any time you detect a predator, you make lots of noise and that makes it harder for the predator. I mean, I'm sure we've all probably had the experience walking through a park or something and, you know, birds will mob us or, yep. or you'll see... Um, a tiny little bird chasing a hawk or something and flying after it and giving it a hard time. You know, so I guess they're, they're just trying to make other animals aware, but particularly members of their own group. Actually, there's a predator around here, so just be on the Look watch. Out. Otherwise, yeah. you'll be you'll be dinner. Uh, yeah, but you're right. I think it, it does really emphasise its wonderful connections um, between species. What's the deal with these butcher birds? <laughs> <laughs> They've got to make a living too, yeah. right? <laughs> and and are they, uh, like, has there been an issue with numbers with them as a result of this? The, like, the have they gone birds? way up? No, no. Uh, the butcher bird numbers, I don't know whether they've gone necessarily up, but I guess presumably they might have gone up a little bit, but their hunting efficiency of mm. this particular species of parrot definitely has. So I think that's probably more the issue rather than numbers going up. Um, and the last example I wanted to talk about, which, you know, is I guess an even more interesting and, and it's controversial, is two ways of approaching invasive predator management. So we know... Right around Australia, we've got big problems with feral cats uh, and red foxes, um, which together consume literally hundreds of millions of individuals of mammals, reptiles and birds per year. So the numbers are extraordinary. Um, So there's a whole range of things we can do to control feral cats and, and foxes. And, of course, we can go out there and we can shoot them, we can trap them and so forth, which we already do. But that's really, really hard to do in some cases. And really ingenious work um, first developed in the case of uh, this device called the Felixa, which is basically this box, if you imagine a box, and as an animal walks past, it scans that with a laser and it basically builds up a profile of that animal, so the way that it walks, how high Hmm. it is and so forth. And if it detects that it's a cat it sprays out this spray, which has actually got a toxin in it. And, of course, cats being cats, they hate being dirty. Yeah, so they'll groom themselves, they lick it, and they die. And so this has been really, really effective, um, and they've trialled that in a a range of environments now and shown that it's basically foolproof. So we're really not getting many false detections, if you like. So Mm. if you imagine a wallaby goes past or something else goes past, it doesn't spray that. So, And the reason they know that is that when the animal goes past, it also takes a photo at the same time. So when it sprays, it takes a photo, and so you know whether it's actually done the right job or not because we don't want it spraying our bilbies and our other animals. We only want it targeting cats. So... Um, that was by Dr. John Reed and, and Catherine Mosley and colleagues. So that's another really, I think, amazing example. And the last one, which again I think is even more interesting, is this idea of what we call toxic trojans, where 
we're actually putting, imagine like um, a transponder, like a pit tag that you might have in your cat or your dog, you know, microchip, mm-hmm. about that sort of size, but a bit smaller. And that's got actually toxin in it and it dissolves when, only when eaten by a predator. So imagine you're a mm. bilby, you put it inside, it sits there. And by the way, I should say that most native animals uh, have resistance to this toxin, 1080, because they've yep. evolved with this plant over millennia. Um and so we can put these animals out, and then if, unfortunately, a bill is eaten by a cat, at least that cat is then removed from the, the population. Yep. So you've still got, hopefully, other bilbies that are still out in the environment. So a really controversial yeah. idea, but I think, again, it just stresses you know, the ingeni- ingenious yeah. ways that we're sort of approaching conservation yeah. and getting good outcomes as well. It's great stuff, Dr. Ewan. I think um, we need these kind of innovative yeah, ideas absolutely. because some of the traditional ones aren't working as well as we would like. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so it's good stuff. Thank you so much. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment. You've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane, and we will chat to you again in a week's time. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.